admit that I almost kind of just breezed over this, this section of, of text. Um, I really wasn't going to cover it in great detail. And my reason, uh, my, my thinking for just kind of breezing through it and, and, and only covering it in, in a very superficial way was because it's really a repetition of everything we talked about last week. So if you were here last week, then we already talked about it. And if you weren't, well, there are notes and you can find ways I'd be happy to, to preach that sermon to you again sometime. But, um, but it just, you know, it's repeating what we've already seen and heard and done. So why get bogged down with uh, just talking about something we've already talked about? And then I kind of was reminded of uh, the fact that uh, one of the big main principles in, in, in interpreting God's word is, uh, of course, context is the most important issue. But one of the things we do when we're interpreting God's word is we look for repeated phrases and words, right? And if a word is repeated over and over again, or if a phrase is repeated over and over again, it's probably something we ought to pay attention to. And so then I started thinking, well, if Luke sees fit to repeat this story, immediately after he tells the story, he repeats it again. It might be wise, for me to slow down and just say, well, maybe there's something else here. Maybe we should consider that Luke repeats the Holy Spirit through Luke, um, repeats the story for a purpose. And so anyways, I had to kind of repent a little bit and uh, ask the Lord like I was almost treating his word as though, well, this isn't as important or, you know, it doesn't bear repetition. Because as we're in this section of the book of Acts, we've talked about how this ministry, how, this, how the house, the conversion of Cornelius is a major turning point in church history. It is a, a major turning point in church history because it opened the door. One of the things it did is that it opened the door to worldwide gospel proclamation. That is, it opened the door for non-Jews to be received into the community of God in the same way the Jews were received into the community of God. And that is on the basis of Christ alone. And I want to make sure that I repeat this from last week. I think that this is crucial because one of the... I don't want to say it's an error, but I think we can get a little misdirected when we think that the conversion of Cornelius opened the door to Gentiles receiving Christ and or being made part of God's uh, community, being made part of and received by God into fellowship with God. But then we reminded ourselves last week that the Gentiles were always received into the community of faith, right? Rahab, a Gentile, received and became part of the Jewish community. And of course, Ruth, and we talked about some others. So Gentiles had always been received. I think the more precise observation to make here isn't so much that Gentiles are now received, but that Gentiles are received in the same way Jews are received, and we should maybe even be more precise, and that is that all people come to Christ in the exact same way. We all come to Christ by on the basis of faith in Christ alone. And that's the big issue, because I think the Jewish Peter and, and his Jewish buddies, and we're going to see today, there's a, this group of circumcised individuals saying, no, you need to become a Jew first, then you can become a Christian. So if you're a Gentile, we welcome you into the Christian faith, but you need to become a Jew first. You need to partake of the Jewish markers of inclusion, especially that of circumcision, but also dietary laws and Sabbath observance. And if you do that, then you can become a Christian. Then Christ will forgive you. And what the story or the conversion, the account of Cornelius and his household coming to faith, what we learned is that these Gentiles came to Christ in the exact same way as the Hebraic Jews and also in the exact same way as the Hellenistic Jews. And in fact, there was no difference in the way Cornelius and his household came to Christ. And that was amazing. It says that 
Peter's uh, companions, who were good Jewish men, were amazed that the Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles in the same way that he fell on us. And so that's the big story here, is that all of us come to faith in Christ in the exact same way. And that is through faith by the work of Christ alone. And so this is a major turning point in church history and that salvation is by faith alone and grace alone on the merits of Christ alone. And the the, the events in Acts chapter 10 and 11 help us clarify the good news. Because the good news isn't first become like me, then you can become like Christ. The good news is Christ will save you by faith alone. His atoning sacrifice is sufficient to forgive you of your sins and make you a son or daughter of the Most High God. So, um, and this is going to be a big issue because when we get to Acts chapter 15, this issue of what does it mean? How does a person come to Christ? On what basis is a person saved is going to be a really big issue. In fact, the very first church council in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council, is asking that question, asking and answering that question, on what basis is a person saved? It's not so much asking who can be saved. Everybody's saying, yes, Gentiles, Hellenistic Jews, Hebraic Jews, they can all be saved. But on what basis is Christ's sacrifice, is his atoning sacrifice on Calvary sufficient to save even Gentiles? And the answer, of course, is absolutely. So that's kind of where we've been in a, to, to explain this turning point in church history. And I think it's a, it's a passage of text that we need to remind ourselves of because, number one, it's repeated. So since Luke repeats it, let's uh, take note of it. But also, we need to understand Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, to help guard us against probably the oldest and most pernicious heresy in the church. The oldest and most pernicious heresy in the church is that it is Jesus plus. That I am saved by Jesus plus something else. I am saved by Jesus plus some external right. I'm, ex- I'm saved by Jesus plus observance of some dietary code or some observing some holy day or some external right that I Involve myself in. That's probably the most ancient and ancient heresy, and it's still with us today, right? How many times? I mean, probably every unorthodox, every heterodox church, and every cult is going to say, "You're saved by Jesus plus." You might hear it say, "Well, you're saved by." By Christ, by grace alone, after all you can do. Well, that's just not true. Big controversy um, in the ecumenical movement regarding um, adoption of, of the Catholic Church. And they said, we believe that you're saved by faith. And somebody asked them, asked them, are you saved by faith alone? And they said, no. We believe you're saved by faith, but not by faith alone. This is a stumbling block, and it's an old, old heterodox teaching. And, it's, and Acts chapter 11 helps us overcome that. So guards against that. The other thing Acts chapter 11 helps us to do is to rest in the sovereign grace of God and His gift of salvation. You can rest that God's work for your salvation is sufficient. So what I'm going to do today, the way I'm going to kind of structure this message, is I'm going to just kind of go through the text and give a brief overview of, of the events that happened. Um, and then uh, towards, the, at the, towards the end of, of the message, I'm going to provide, I don't know, a number of different, I think, pertinent applications to what we read. So let's go ahead, let's read our text today. Follow along with me as I read, and then um, we'll pick it up. Acts chapter 11, 
verses 1 through 18. Listen to God's word. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel. Stand in this house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I to stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And then they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Well, we want to pick this story up, and we're picking it up with the fact that the news of the events at the house of Cornelius in the, the town or in the city of Caesarea, that news travels fast. It gets back to Jerusalem. And uh, they'd heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And I just want to comment and camp just a little bit on this idea of, of them receiving and what it means to receive the word of God. Because the idea here is that they, re- they accepted the word of God or they welcomed the word of God or they approved the God, word of God. The idea here is it's not just toleration of the word of God, but rather to take hold of as true. And I think that's important for us as we talk about God's word and as we say, yes, we've received God's word. But there are many people, and and I pray not here, but if so, if, if you fall into this category, then I pray you would consider this, that you not just you not just say, well, I believe in the historical veracity of God's word. I believe that there was a guy by the name of Jesus Christ and he lived and walked on the earth and that, yeah, he probably died and he died on the cross and that was terrible and what a horrible thing and, you know, all of that. It is one thing to hold to the veracity, the truthfulness of what's written in the Bible and it's a whole nother thing to hold to as true. And that is to take hold of because when you receive the word of God as it is um, portrayed here in, in this particular verse, it has the idea of not only holding true, but when you hold something as true, it's going to change the way you act, or it'll affect the way you act, I should say. Maybe not change, but it should affect the way you act. If you believe that church on Randall Place, church services start at 10 o'clock, that will affect the way you order your life on a Sunday morning. Because you hold that as true. And so if you receive the word of God as true, it will impact the way you live out your life. You can't say, well, I believe that Jesus Christ, you may say, well, I believe it's true that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that he's coming again. And if it has no impact on how you live, then perhaps, well, the Bible says the demons believe. When Christ takes hold of us and when his word takes hold of us, it will affect how we live out our lives. It will change the way we do things. 
It'll alter the way we think. It will drive us to repentance. We're saying, wait a second, I did something that was not... I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but anybody repent this week? Some of you raise your hand. See, that's based on God's Word. You're taking God's Word. It's like, I've sinned against the Holy God, and so I'm going to humble myself and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you probably even believe that God forgave you of your sins. This is because you have received God's Word in the way that it's being referred to here in Acts chapter 11. And so they have received the Word. What did they receive? They received the Word of God. The when we look back at what word of God did Peter preach to them, this is what he preached to him: that Jesus lived, he died, he rose again, and that he's Lord of all. In other words, he's the judge of the living and the dead. This was the word that Peter preached, that Jesus lived, died, rose again, and is Lord of all. And it impacted the way they lived their lives. And so they believed the word of God. And the people in Cornelius' household repented. The Holy Spirit came upon them. They were baptized, welcomed into the church. And you'd think this would be cause for great rejoicing, but not everybody was happy. Because there's a group of people back in Jerusalem that is referred to in our text as the circumcision party. And we're going to hear more about this circumcision party as we go along. And if you look up this group, how it's used throughout the Bible, you will see that this is referring to meticulous Jews. Jewish people, Jewish Christians, Christians who were, right, because at this time, everybody was pretty much a Jew um, who was a believer. Um, But they were very meticulous in their observance in their observance of the Mosaic law. And so they would have been holding to, well, you can be a Christian, but you have to be circumcised first. You must um, follow the Mosaic law. You must uh, follow the, the laws of cleanliness, the purity laws, the ceremonial laws, all of those things. So they were very meticulous. And this group of people heard that Peter went to this household of Cornelius. Um, and they said, Don't you know you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? And they're criticizing Peter for going to uncircumcised uncircumcised men and eating with them as though that this was some form of violation of God's word. I want you to know that nowhere in the Mosaic law does it say that a good upright Jewish person cannot go and eat in the house of a non-Jewish person. That is totally made up. It is not in the law of Moses. It is in many of the laws that came down through tradition, but it is not in God's word. Peter did not violate God's law. People got upset saying, you're you're violating our tradition. They've exalted tradition to usurp the word of God. And I'm going to spend a little more time on this in our application section. God's word had basically been usurped by man-made dogma, and they're mad at Peter for violating their man-made dogma. And whenever we do that, whenever we exalt our own ideas and traditions above God's law, basically what we are saying is that Christ is insufficient or insufficient to save. Like I said, I'll come back to this point. I think it's, it's important. And then I love the way Peter handles this situation. And so he explains it in order. He gives a logical explanation for his actions. And one of the things, I, I don't know if Peter realized this or not, but he had insight that these circumcised brothers did not have. I mean, he had a vision. I mean, he's just sitting there minding his own business, waiting for lunch to be fixed. And he has a vision from heaven, and then he has a visitation. And and in the vision, he says, three men are going to appear at your house. I've already given a vision to another guy 30 miles north of here. And three days or a few days ago, he sent emissaries over, and they're going to be knocking at your door in just a few minutes. So as soon as this 
trance, this vision is done, you're going to have three guys knock at your door. Don't hesitate to go with them. And so Peter's got all sorts of inside information, all sorts of uh, privileged information that these brothers in Jerusalem did not have. And so he's very gentle with them. He says, let me explain to you in order what, ha- what happened. I just find that amazing the way he did that. He's helpful. He understands that they don't have the same information that I have. And this also indicates great leadership from Peter. Peter was the, really the head of the church. It would have been real simple for Peter to say, don't you know who I am? I'm Peter. Jesus gave me the keys of the kingdom. I'm the leader of the church. How dare you question anything I have to say? Jesus gave me the authority with the keys to open that which needs to be opened and to shut that which needs to be shut. And so I'm telling you to shut it. Jesus, Peter shows much greater leadership and it's great that he did because this would have split the church. In fact, this issue becomes such a divisive issue in the church. They hold a whole a, a church council uh, about it, but it is something that could divide the church. And he doesn't simply assert his authority and say, do what I say, but rather he says, let me show you why. And he begins to show how God was in control and sovereign over all the events. And as we'll see in the end, it actually, the people listened to him and they said, yeah, that makes sense. And they rejoiced in the news. And so he says, let me tell you in order what happened. I'm, I've already explained this, but I'll explain it again. That he's minding his own business. He goes up on the roof about lunchtime, about noontime to pray. He's waiting for lunch to be, to be made. And he has this vision of this sheep being lowered and all kinds of animals, clean and unclean, according to Jewish law, clean and unclean in this vision. And a voice says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter, I I believe Peter thinks that this is a test from God. And he says, no, of course not. I'm not going to do that. You know nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. I would never eat something that you, God, have declared unclean. And God says, don't call common what I have cleansed or what I have purified. Don't call unclean that which I have made clean. Don't call common what I call holy. And we should note that this issue or this vision of the sheep with all of these animals is not primarily about dietary laws. I think you can make a case here about how God has declared all foods clean. Um, Mark, of course, declares that. but, But that's not its primary issue. The primary issue here is that I am reaching out. There are no unclean people who are unworthy of the gospel. Associating with non-Jews will not defile you and in fact you need to go to them and declare the gospel. The Gentiles to whom I am sending you are not to be treated as unclean and they are not to be ignored. This is a major shift. In fact, I, I would almost say that in fact last week I almost came this close to entitling the the whole sermon the conversion of Peter. Um, And I just shied away from that because Peter wasn't actually converted. But this was a change in Peter's life. I mean, he's a good Jewish boy. And he's always followed the dietary and, and the cleanliness laws and the purity laws that he'd been taught. And now God is saying, listen, things are opening up. And the things that I promised and in the past, have now been fulfilled in Christ. And I really want you to make sure you understand that in the book of Acts, this idea of going to Gentiles, I'm probably getting ahead of myself, of going to Gentiles isn't something new that God is doing. It is just God fulfilling what he's always promised he was going to do. So this is a major shift. He begins to associate with Gentiles and, according to Peter's words, without hesitation. Because it was by order of the Holy Spirit and so he goes to the household of Cornelius and he has been told to share the gospel and he does. And then he says this. Um, 
And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as, a, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift, and I want to focus on that, if God gave them the same gift, what's the gift he's talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit fell on them in the same way as at the beginning. The beginning there is at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came on these Gentiles in the same way the Holy Spirit came on us on the day of Pentecost. There is no difference. There is no distinction. He came on us or he came on them in the same way he came on us at the day of Pentecost in the same way he came on uh, Hellenistic or Samaritan believers uh, at the so-called Samaritan Pentecost. In In other words, God is reaching people in the same way. There is no distinction between how they receive the Holy Spirit and how we receive the Holy Spirit. And I do want to uh, focus a little bit on this idea of the gift of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is a gift from God. It is God's gift. The point of this well, there's probably a lot of points, but the one I'm going to kind of harp on this morning is that one does not earn the Holy Spirit. You do not work for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift, and it is given by our gracious Heavenly Father, poured out by Christ. He is a gift given at the moment of salvation. In fact, He applies the work of salvation to Christ. And this maybe is a, a little, little bit theological, but if you think about it, Christ died for our sins, but how did those benefits get applied to us? It is the Holy Spirit who applies the work of Christ to us. Let me just give you a a little bit of what the Holy Spirit does in our salvation. He's amazing. First of all, He illumines God's Word. He illumines God's Word. Second, He convicts us of sin. The only reason, and third, he makes us children of God. And then fourth, he assures us that we are God's children. This is an amazing thing. Do you see the process of salvation that the Holy Spirit is working out in us? He makes God's word known to us. He convicts us of our sin. He makes us children of God and then assures us that we truly are children of God. I remember uh, when I became a Christian, um, it was through hearing the Sermon on the Mount. Now, make no mistake, I'd heard the Sermon on the Mount before. I may have heard it a dozen times or maybe a couple of dozen times. But on that day, the Word of God was illumined in a way that it never, all of a sudden I saw it for what it was. And I knew that I knew this is the Word of God. What was that? What was the difference between this time and the previous three dozen times? The Holy Spirit illuminated and I saw it for what it was. And then I was convicted of my sin. Things that I considered okay, not only just okay, but I celebrated in. I now was broken by, I'm like going, wait a second, ten minutes ago, I would have been celebrating these actions, these ideas, and these thoughts. And now I'm broken and weeping. How in the world can a guy like me continue on in that? What Happened? What's the difference between a guy broken over the things that ten minutes ago he would have been celebrating? What happened? It was the Holy Spirit convicted me of sin. He illuminated God's word. I saw my sin and I was convicted of my sin and I repented of my sin. Folks, I would have never repented of my sin. There was nothing to repent of. In my mind, I was fine. There's nothing to repent of. What takes a guy from being um, celebrating to repenting? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. This is God's gift. I didn't go looking for God. I wasn't out searching for God. God opened His Word up and I saw it for what it was. I was convicted of my sin and He caused me to be born again. That evening, that night, I was made a new creation. I was made a child of God. I was formerly a child of wrath, a child of disobedience, and now a child of God. And today, He continues, the Holy Spirit continues to assure that we are children of the living God. This is the work of the Lord. This is God's gift to His people. 
What an awesome thing. What an awesome truth. Now let me just go ahead and, and, and make this statement. There is no receiving of the Spirit apart from receiving Christ. You cannot have the Holy Spirit if you are, don't belong to Christ. So if you want to be like Simon Magus and just think, well, I just want all the benefits of the Holy Spirit, but I don't want the whole Christ thing, that isn't going to happen. Likewise, there is no receiving Christ without receiving the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. He is a gift given to you when you are saved. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 8, if you do not have the Spirit, you do not belong to Him. And Peter's saying, that same gift that came to them in the exact same way it came to us. One of the great, great Trinitarian passages in all of the Bible is, is Romans, or I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through, is it 14, 19? Read the whole chapter. But what does it tell us? It tells us that God chooses us, Christ purchases us, and the Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. Folks, it is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all involved in our salvation. The Holy Spirit didn't die for your sins, but He does apply the work of Christ to us so that we can be born again. So there's no receiving the Spirit apart from receiving Christ. There is no receiving Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. You, you can't have part of the Godhead and not the other part. Well, I got two-thirds of the Trinity, you know, working in my life. No. That just doesn't work. And then I love how this was received. The circumcision party, the party that criticized Peter, says that when they heard this, they fell silent. I don't know what was going through their minds. I won't presume upon God's word. They fell silent. And then they glorified God. Praise God, Gentiles then have also been granted repentance that leads to life. Notice, they've been granted repentance. God gave them repentance. And so, these skeptics, these guys were going, oh, Peter, you're off. You can't be doing what you're doing. They heard what Peter said. I believe God's Spirit opened their hearts and minds and they, the Word of God was illumined and they said, yeah, that seems right. This is what God's doing. And they rejoiced and celebrated. So, that's just a quick overview. Let me add a few um, applications uh, that I think might be helpful for us as we go from here. The first application, number one, is that God's purpose includes salvation of people from all nations for His glory. God's purpose includes salvation of people from all nations for His glory. I want you to compare, and I think I've put it up there. I want us to compare Genesis chapter 12, 3 with Revelation chapter 5, 9, and 10. Look at this. This is the promise to Abram. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, that is in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's one of the great promises, the great covenantal promises made to Abram. Look at what happens in Revelation, last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. God has fulfilled the promise. The promise He made to Abram back in Genesis, He has utterly and completely fulfilled. And by the time we get to this heavenly vision in Revelation chapter 9, it is God has accomplished His purposes. He saves people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And it's very interesting because here in Chapter 11, verse 18. Then to the Gentiles, it is that, that word, if we can be a little Greek geekish here, it is ta ethne, that is to the peoples, to the nations, that God has now granted. Then to the nations, God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
This is God has always been promising that he was going to save the nations. He was going to work through the people of Abraham. Through the seed of Abraham would come forth a blessing who would be a blessing to all the nations. To ta ethne. One of the things I want you to see here is that when Gentiles are brought into fellowship with Christ, this is, and if you get one thing out of it, you can, you can sleep through everything else. Get this one thing. And you, you can go back and nap if you want to. This one thing, and that is, the book of Acts is not telling us that God is doing something new. It's not new. God is fulfilling what he's always been promising. And I think that's a big difference because sometimes we think that God now going to the Gentiles is God um, kind of fulfilling a plan B. Like the, the Gentiles are a plan B. Like, well, Jews don't listen to me, so I'm going to go to the Gentiles. God has always been planning on going to the Gentiles. Look at Genesis 12.3. He's always been doing this. He is now fulfilling what he has been promising. So the book of Acts, we see a lot of new things happening, but I'd like us to begin to understand that it's not so much a new thing that God is doing, but a fulfilled thing that God is doing. God is bringing about all of his promises in Christ, and now they are being fulfilled in his, um, he's fulfilling all of his promises. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, Paul refers to this as a mystery that has been revealed in ages past but is now made known to us. Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 may be one of the great, great passages of text about the church that God created. But um, chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 may be um, key to this where Paul writes and says, Oh, well, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, what is the mystery that was not perceived previously, but now is received? This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is something that was was in the mind of God forever, but our forefathers didn't get it. It hadn't been revealed to them yet, but it has been revealed. Now that Christ has come, this has been made known. So what's happening in the book of Acts is just all of God's promises are being fulfilled. And so through Abraham's seed, that is Jesus Christ, elect from all nations will be saved. So there are some implications here, if this is true, and it is. God's purpose includes salvation from people from all nations for his glory. This, the implication is that, or one of the implications would be that missions is at the very heart of God. Missions is at the heart of God. I always say, God is the first missionary, right? Adam and Eve sinned, and what did they do? Did they go running to God? No, they ran away from God, and what did God do? He went and searched them out. He went and found them. God is a missionary God. He goes and he, Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that was lost. The lost didn't come flocking to Jesus. He went out to them. He's a missionary. God put on flesh and dwelt among us. God is a missionary God. It's at the heart of God. And so, it is imperative then, as believers and as a church, that we are involved in global missions. I don't think we can be a church without being involved in global missions. And there are a lot of ways to do that. For instance, one way, a very simple way you can do that. In fact, many of you already are involved. You're going to get one of those little Samaritan boxes and you're going to give it and the gospel is going to go around the world because of that. Doesn't necessarily mean I, I think we should all my own personal view, and you can take this and throw it away or hang on to it if you want. I think that if you are able, you need to go. Cross, we need to do cross-cultural missionary work. I think it's good for you to go to another country and share the gospel with people. But you don't have to. Not everybody may do that. But you can be involved in in global missions through prayer, through giving. Um, through a lot of different ways, but it's at the very heart of God because God is going to all nations. Every tribe, language, people, and nation. How is every tribe, na 
language nation and people are going to hear the word of God unless somebody goes. You can support people who go. And let me just take something off the table here real quick. Because I, when I say stuff like that, one of the responses I get is, why should I go across the world to share the gospel when my neighbor needs to hear the gospel? Here's what I'm talking about. Let's walk and chew gum at the same time. I'm not saying either or. Listen, you've got to go across the world, but ignore your neighbor. I'm not saying that. I'm saying preach the gospel to your neighbor. That doesn't mean you can't take two weeks and go across the world. So for the other 50 weeks of the year, preach to your neighbor. Proclaim the gospel to those in your community. This is not an either-or proposition, so please don't think that, oh, well, I don't need to go because there's people in my own community who need to hear the gospel. Folks, there are literally people who have never heard the gospel. Never. Yeah, there are people in this state who have never heard the gospel. We can go to them, too. There are other ways to go into all the world, folks. We We can support campus ministries. Because people at universities are coming from all over the world. When we support things like Christian Challenge, they're preaching the gospel to people who've never heard the gospel. They come from countries that are closed. People from Pakistan. People from communist China are coming and hearing about Christ in these campus ministries. Folks, this is going into all the world by by not even leaving your city. Missions, global missions, is at the heart of God. So that's the first application. God's purpose includes salvation of people from all nations for his glory. And the implication is that God is a missionary God and I believe his people need to be missionary people. We should reflect that. The second one is that salvation is of God and yet he uses us. Isn't that amazing? We talked about this a bit last week. But God is the initiator of salvation. That's explicit in the book of Acts. But God is the initiator of salvation. It's especially explicit here. Peter wasn't going looking for Cornelius, and Cornelius wasn't going looking for Peter. Cornelius was doing his Cornelius thing in the town of Caesarea, and Peter was doing his Peter thing in the town of Joppa, 30 miles apart. They were not in any way cognizant of one another, nor were they searching for one another. But God so arranged events to bring Peter to Caesarea to speak to Cornelius and his household the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God had been preparing Cornelius, and we talked about that last week, God had been preparing the heart of Cornelius and his household to receive the message of salvation. And as, we, as we've mentioned, don't you find it interesting? It's so interesting to me that when the, the angel shows up and tells Cornelius, go and send for Peter, why didn't the angel share the gospel with him? You notice the angel didn't share the gospel with Cornelius. The angel said, go get Peter and he'll share the gospel with you. So once again, redeemed people. God uses redeemed people to redeem people. This is what he does. He uses us. Even though he initiated all of the events, for some reason, he uses this this, uh, vessel of dishonor to be a blessing. He's the initiator of salvation. God uses you and I as heralds of the message that's saved. God grants salvation, but he does it through people like, through the foolishness of preaching, Paul says. Through the foolishness of preaching. I don't know why God chose the foolishness of preaching or some other mean, by, as, a, as opposed to some other means, but that is the means by which people are saved, through the preaching of the gospel. So God initiates Salvation salvation is of God, and yet he uses folks like you and me. That's the second application. The third application is that wrong thinking is common to the Christian life. Wrong thinking is common to the Christian life. And what we see here, the wrong thinking is the exaltation of tradition. Now, I want you to know that I have no problems with tradition. Tradition is not a bad thing. In fact, I think tradition is really important. Tradition is how we, we pass down family customs and, and ideals and, and all sorts of things. You all probably have traditions. Maybe you have a Christmas tradition. This is what we do. We celebrate, on, we open presents on Christmas Eve as opposed to we open presents on Christmas Day. That's your family tradition. There's nothing 
wrong with tradition. And even in the church, there's nothing wrong with tradition. The problem comes is when tradition usurps the Word of God. That's when there's a problem. We have a tradition here. In fact, I even use that word very... I've used it in the past, but I used it very um, um, deliberately today that when I talked about how we receive communion, it is our tradition that you will come down the center aisle and receive the elements and return down the side aisle. I used the word tradition and I made sure I used it today because that is our tradition. Now, here's what the problem would be is one day I will not be the pastor of this church. Um, I'm not planning on leaving or anything like that. But, but one day I'm going to die even if I'm here the rest of my days. One of these days, John Lake will be dead. And you will have a new pastor. And if you, for a moment, say, and he says, well, come on, I'm going to get some, some deacons and elders to pass out the plates. And you say, that's not godly. God does not honor the passing of the, the elements God only honors if we self-serve. You have replaced... You've you've replaced tradition with something divine. This is just our tradition. I can go into the details of how we got there, and it's really more pragmatic than it was anything else. That's just the way... But that's the way we do it. Here's the other thing, though, that I think would be, be equally bad. Somebody says, well, we're not going to observe the Lord's Supper at all. And that becomes a tradition. It's like that's a clear violation of God's word. So tradition, there's nothing wrong with tradition. But what had happened is that they had taken human tradition and it had usurped and supplanted the word of God. We cannot have that. So let's talk maybe a couple. I talked about one particular tradition. Here's one then that um, I might step on a toe or two here. Sorry. I'm not sorry. Um, people have come to me, and we don't do a lot of altar calls here. We, I'm not opposed to them or anything like that. I, we just don't traditionally do an altar call. I probably maybe twice have said it with every eye closed and every head bowed. I don't even know how to say it, so you know that. Um, raise your hand. I, we don't have a lot of altar calls. We might have people come down and pray and stuff like that. We do offer a, a, an offer of salvation, but we don't have a lot of altar calls. And people have seen that as orthodox, that if you don't have an altar call, that you must be heterodox at best, but maybe a cult, you know, or a heretical group. There are no altar calls in the Bible. In fact, altar calls came in about 120 years ago by a guy by the name of Charles Finney. Charles Wesley maybe did kind of like that, but Charles Finney perfected it. By the way, Finney was a heretic, so um, at least theologically. Not that I'm saying altar calls are heretical. I'm not saying that. Finney was was a heretic. He perfected it, and then I think guys in the evangelical movement, like Billy Graham, really promoted it, so I don't have a real problem with it. I'm just saying it is not a divine command. That's all I'm saying. That's it. So if you go to a church that has altar calls every week, praise God. We can fellowship together. We probably won't have one today. But I will call you to respond to the gospel. Probably no altar call. Here's another good one. Step on some more toes. Sorry. Not sorry. Making sure that your prayer, at the end of your prayer, you include the tagline, in Jesus' name. Otherwise, it's not a valid prayer. I want you to read in the Bible and find any prayer, any prayer that concludes with in the name of Jesus or in Jesus' name or in, for Christ's sake or anything like that. Find one and bring it to me and I'll get up next week and repent. See, it doesn't exist. Now, we do know we pray in Jesus' name. Jesus said anything you ask in my name. But there is no, that doesn't mean that we put the little tagline that somehow that seals the prayer. If you don't make that little tagline, then the prayer isn't valid and Jesus doesn't have to answer it. Have we really exalted that to a place of divine command? So, there are some things that perhaps we might or might not do in in a local church that, in other words, wrong thinking is common to the Christian life. Here's another 
very personal aspect of wrong thinking, and it's going to lead us to another point. And it is this idea that a church grows by making sure, well, I'll just say this, birds of a feather flock together. Well, I, I agree that that's, that's a true statement. Birds of a feather do flock together. But that the church is not to be comprised of my kind of people. We, we want everybody to be like us. But here's the thing. Cultural differences are to be expected when the gospel goes to the nations. When the gospel goes to the nations, when the gospel goes out, even into the region of Pine, be aware that we might come from different cultural backgrounds and we are not to all be the same. The church, there's a fancy term in the church growth movement, and it's called the homogenous unit principle. You don't need to know that term, or HUP. Homogenous unit principle simply means that we recognize that the church grows when you get a whole lot of people who all agree on the same thing. So if you want to grow your church, this is what you do. Find people who have the same affinity as with one another, that they all like to do the same thing, they all have the same thing in common, and you will grow a church. And they were right, you will grow a church. In fact, I had a guy tell me, this is how you grow a church. Go to a major metropolitan area, fixate on one issue, one issue, and just make that what your church is about. Uh, or on one target, one group of people, and just target that group of people. And you will have, in a group, in a city of a couple million people, you'll have a church of 500, maybe even 1,000. That's a pretty healthy church. Well, it's a pretty large church. It's not a healthy church. I think that's a horrible church. And in this text, we see the gospel going to different groups of people. And guess that's going to mean that now our potlucks are going to be kind of weird. Aren't they? Because when the Gentiles come to the Jewish potluck, may look a little different. I think it's going to look better, taste better, but it's going to look different. Or just going out to eat or going over to somebody's house and they serve you food that you say, I don't know, can I eat that? And then we say, well, they're Christians, but they're not. But they're kind of like not quite as Christian as me. That's what happens. Cultural differences. I mean, we have all sorts of wrong thinking in the Christian life. We need to be be cautious of this. I know that a church will reflect its community, but, um, you know, you can say, well, we want children to be part of our church. Well, then you get children, and guess what? Babies cry. And they're distracting. And then we get mad because I can't believe that person couldn't control their baby. And kids don't always act like adults or never. Maybe that's best. But they run around. Simone and I were talking yesterday. You notice kids run everywhere? Would you say, would you go do this? Boom! Why why do you have to run? Why are you in a hurry? Well, that's what kids do. So they run. They might even run in church. They don't act like everybody else. Maybe that's better. But God is glorified when we have a whole bunch of, of, of different types of people. Gosh, when I first started here, I'm running long, I'm sorry, but when we first started here, we had nobody, just, right, Dixie, just a bunch of elderly people. Neither Dixie nor I were old then. We were very young. And I remember the first time I was here when, we, when a lady showed up with a baby and that baby cried. And I remember one of the older deacons, we didn't have younger deacons, but one of the older deacons, he walked up to her after church, and I'm going, oh, I'm wondering how this is going to go. And she was apologetic. I'm so sorry. He's going, your baby crying is an answer to our prayers. I'm like going, I, I broke. I just, I, I'm like going, that's just like the greatest answer I've ever heard in my whole life. 
Your baby is an answer to our prayer. We've been praying for, for families. We've been praying for kids. And when we get kids, they're going to cry. So praise God, we've got a baby crying in our church. We want more babies crying in our church. Um, wrong thinking. Let's, let's avoid that. Another next one. I probably got off point a little there, but that's all right. God still changes people. This is an amazing thing. God still changes people. Look at Peter changed. God repeated the vision three times and Peter changed. His whole view about Gentiles changed. And notice how the circumcision party changed. They started off criticizing Peter and in the end, he told them what happened. They're going, yeah, you're right. Praise God. They glorified God. God still changes people. I'm glad he's still changing us. And then I'll just, my last point is this. God is God and we are not. That maybe not, doesn't, maybe that's obvious and everybody knows it, but we need to remember it. God is God and we are not. All of these events in Acts chapter 11 are centered around God taking the initiative. God initiated all of these things. And folks, that should humble us. It should make us humble. That God does the work. We don't. He uses us. He works through us. I don't. I, he does. When somebody comes to Christ, it's because God brought them to Christ. He may have used you as an instrument. When people are blessed in our community for whatever reasons, um, God's doing that work. We're not God. He's God. We're His servants. And so, anyways, with that, I'll just conclude a few, make a few concluding points. The first one that we should remember is that salvation is through Christ plus nothing. Salvation is through Christ plus nothing. We add nothing to the salvation that Christ purchased for us. So if it's Christ plus observing these holy days or it's Christ plus, you know, celebrating this particular rite or what have you, it's Christ plus nothing for salvation. Remember this also, Acts is not presenting a change in God's plan, but the fruition of God's plan. Acts is not presenting a change in God's plan, but the fruition of God's plan. Number three, mission is God's heart. So let's pray how we can be more involved. How can we be more involved in reaching the nations? You might say, well, we're a tiny little church. Well, this tiny little church has already been all over the world physically. We've literally been all over the world. We can continue. God is moving in a lot of different ways. Let's be part of what God is doing to the nations. And then finally, be intentioned to fellowship with those who are not like you. I've always said one of the beauties of a small church is that we are forced to rub elbows with people who are not like us. In a, in a really large church, and I have no problems with large churches, but in a large church, you can find a group of people who are like you. The first youth group I went to, there was 250 people in the college career group. And I found uh, a couple of people who were bicyclists like me, and we hung out together. And I could do that. In a small church, you can do it a little here. We do have a few cyclists. But in a small church, we're forced to fellowship with people who aren't exactly like us. I think that's beautiful. I think that's really good. I have to rub shoulders, and I have to get along with people who aren't like me. And you have to get along with me, and even though I'm not like you, throw that homogenous unit principle out the window. We all might, might like different music, but this is the music we sing. And we have a purpose and, and a reason why we sing the particular music that we sing. But I'm not here to gather a group of people around a style of music or around a particular style of preaching or around a certain environment that we create in the church. We don't have a light show or fog machines. We don't dim the lights. We don't. It's just. This is what. We love it when we have a whole bunch of diverse people who are gathered around the risen Christ. That's what we have in common. Not our activities, not our hobbies, not our taste in music, not our taste in anything else, but our the fact that we are redeemed by the risen Christ. And I think that's an awesome thing. Let's stand and let's pray. I could ramble some more. Our Father, we come before you this day with thanksgiving and praise. For you have opened the door of salvation to 
to those who will call upon your name and you have not limited it to race or economic standing or culture or any of these things, Lord God, those walls do not exist. Salvation is not for men only or women only. There is no male or female in salvation. I pray, Father God, that this day, that if there are those here who have not heard the God, who have heard the gospel today, that Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again, stood in their place, and died on the cross for their sins. He took their sins, the just for the unjust, and have seen that in the, in the ordinance of communion, have heard that in the message, Lord God, and that you have illumined the word and convicted them in their heart that they would. Um, and are being drawn by your Holy Spirit that they would respond and they can come and speak with me um, during the last song or out in the foyer or even this week, call me on the phone. They can speak to my wife or they can speak to one of the elders or one of the church members here, Lord God, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I pray that they would do that, that they would follow the leading of the Holy Spirit this day and call upon your holy name So we give you praise and we give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen. Before we sing our last song,